0: Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On one side, you're going to get some places to take notes if you would like. On the other side, you're going to get a thing that reflects on what we talked about today and some questions to go back and reflect on what we talked about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes. Uh, questions, uh, verses, announcements, everything that goes with the message today. No videos, though. Sorry for you. Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, This is Acts uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. And it says, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in all the ways that you are leading us in our lives. Uh, from the places where you're healing our hearts and our souls and our lives and leading us to also be sent out. And I ask that we become a people who also leap in joy of the great salvation that we have received and that we would speak it to one another in ways that bring you great glory as we live in that joy that you so constantly bring us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing the summer series about certain miracles in the Bible that have a deeper meaning to them. Sometimes that we don't actually see, or maybe sometimes we have interpreted them the wrong way. Uh, We have this cultural mindset today; it is called Westernized thinking. We call ourselves the West. Uh, We're a product of this thing that is known as the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment brought around a lot of good things, like the Scientific Revolution and things like that. Uh, But I also think that the word the Enlightenment—it's a very prideful term because what it essentially does is look at every. Everybody who's come before us and said, those people are in the dark, they're stupid, but we have more light, hence we are enlightened. Uh, There are, again, some great things came out of the Enlightenment, though. Again, the scientific revolution, a lot of the people involved in that scientific revolution were Christians because they believed that God created the world in a way that we can know it. That God set up certain laws in place, so we can look at those and say, "This is how things are supposed to function," and we can figure out the natural world around us in in certain ways. Now, some guys that were Christians and involved in this. A uh, this guy named Francis Bacon. That's a great name. No, yeah. did you? Okay, uh, Francis Bacon. I- Sir Isaac Newton, he's one of those guys as, as well. Uh, even the whole idea of apologetics in Christianity where we can make a reason case for the faith starts to come out of this thing as the, as the Enlightenment. So you get science, industrial revolution, modern medicine, democracy but there are a few things in the Enlightenment that weren't so great. One of the things the Enlightenment did was in people is it raised the idea of our own personal reason above everything else. That if we can't explain something it must not have an explanation and we placed ourselves at the center of the universe. And today, our own human reason, a lot of times, will dismiss the possibility of the supernatural. It's personal and cultural. We all tend to do this. Our rational minds and our westernized thinking want to rebel against this idea that miracles are real and true and they actually happen. It's kind of like if you were raised in the middle of a desert and all you saw is sand dune and no water and someone comes and tries to tell you there's a place on this earth called Hawaii and you're like there's that maybe in your dreams there's a place but I've never seen Hawaii all I've seen is this. I can tell you this, Hawaii is real. I have been there a couple times. It's a very nice place and it's real. But sometimes it's like that. We live in a cultural perspective so often in one place. It's hard to understand what God is really doing in other Places. And this is why we're doing this series on miracles. It's to look outside of ourselves. There's a reason why miracles are called supernatural because they're not in the realm of the natural. It's God doing something outside the bounds of nature. And so when we look at these miracles, we have to understand for God to set aside. The certain laws that he set up in nature to do something miraculous, there's a whole reason behind that that he would begin to do that. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to cover two miracles with you. They're both sort of related. I'm going to give you a macro view of both of them and then connect them because they're both healings. I've talked about both of these before. One of these healings is done by Jesus and another is done by a guy named Peter. If you have a Bible, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. That's where we're going to start. Um, Peter's a guy in the Bible who has kind of a typecast about him and who he is as a person. Uh, He's kind of arrogant and brash and runs headlong into things. Kind of like in certain movies, people get typecast in certain roles. Like if you want a a quirky lead in a movie, you choose Johnny Depp, you know, because that's the guy. Maybe not so much with all the allegations against him, but, you know, that was was the guy. If you want sarcastic funny, you choose someone like Kevin Hart. Or you want, like, smoldering charm that's family-friendly, you pick The Rock because in Jumanji, that's his superpower, smoldering charm. Anybody seen Jumanji? Okay. I thought that was funny. Apparently you didn't. Whatever. Okay. Uh, so, uh, imagine you're casting a movie, and you need a male lead that, that is uh, compassionate and friendly and a scientific genius, and your two choices are Tom Hanks and Vin Diesel. Who do you choose? Tom Hanks, right? Because that's the role. That's the guy. If you want someone to drive a car faster, say, I am Groot, you go with Vin Diesel. So, so, Peter has this whole typecast about him. And what you notice is after Jesus dies and rises from the grave and the book of Acts starts to take place, God is constantly moving and changing him from that typecast to something new, where he starts to, his heart starts to melt and he starts to see people and needs around him. And this is kind of where he is at this point. So, Acts chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 1. It goes like this, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. What it shows is at the beginning of Acts, the apostles are still following Jewish heritage and customs. So they're going to the temple to pray. The ninth hour is about 3 p.m. Uh, Verse 2: And a man lame from birth was being carried, so that's his life condition, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Acts kind of follows this trajectory. Acts chapter 1 is the disciples waiting for the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit shows up. Acts chapter 3 is them now living out what God is calling them to. And the rest of Acts is how that kind of works out in their lives. So, verse 4. Uh, no, verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, this is standard begging in this time and this day. Uh, people who were disabled in this way couldn't really do anything. And so what their job to do was simply to beg, and people were supposed to help take care of them. Now, they set him outside the temple for two reasons. Number one is God's people were supposed to be generous, okay? Okay. The second reason he's outside the temple is that the religious leaders at that time saw anybody with a disability as being cursed from God, so they weren't allowed to go into the temple. So one side is good. Hey, uh, those people are generous going in there. On the other side, it's bad because the religious leaders are judging you. So the miracle can't be purchased with money. This is solely the grace of God. And God is going to transform not just this guy's body, but his heart, because that in the end is the intent of all of these things. Uh, Peter and this beggar are in the same place where neither one of them have any money, but it's no hindrance to the grace of Christ and what God will do in this guy's life to heal him. Verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praying. God. Those words are a reference back to the Old Testament and Isaiah 35 where the lame shall be healed and leap like the deer. Uh, this guy, if someone from birth has been in this condition, he has never stood up. And yet, now he is leaping and jumping around. I have been walking for decades, and I still get a little scared if I got to leap around because like, I just might fall over. This guy, as soon as he stands up, I'm like, I'll be like, careful, buddy. You know, you get older, and these kind of things happen. You fall over and you break your thumb or something like that. You, you, just, some things just happen sometimes the older you get. But this guy's just jumping around, and, and it's amazing because he's jumping around because of God's redemption in his life. Where does he go? He goes into the temple to praise God for the healing that he has received. He celebrates God's goodness. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So in the end you see this miracle is not just about this healing. The goal of the miracle is the glory of God and that people start to rejoice in the miraculous thing God has done. It's not for us just to focus on this thing, but what God is actually doing in the world. And that's what begins to happen here. People start to worship God because of the miracle. Now, Acts chapter 3 is the first instance of a miracle like this in the book of Acts. There are actually 14 miracles like this in the book of Acts in 12 of the 28 chapters, but that's the first. And some scholars say if you understand this miracle at the beginning of Acts right here, you will understand every other miracle in the book of Acts because this miracle is there to show you how God feels about suffering in the world and what God has decided to do about it, that God is going to to send his people to come and alleviate suffering and step into that place, and it shows when our mission in the world is supposed to be. That's where we're going to land and where we're going to end. I'm not going to pray and be done. Wah, wah. Sorry for you. you got a whole another half of the message here. So open your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Uh, In Acts 3, 4, Peter looks at this guy, and he he says, look at us, because he wants to get a look at him. And and I used to wonder, why did he say this? What's going on here? And I have some speculation, and I think it goes back to something he saw with Jesus. And you may not agree with me, but I got a microphone, so I get to tell you. Uh, John chapter 5, uh, Jesus heals a guy in John chapter 5. And it's really kind of interesting what happens and what takes place. So this is it, John 5, starting in verse 2. Now there's in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So it's a very nice covered place. You ever go to the pool, you're outside in the sun, it's like, man, I'd like to have a nice shady area whole area nice and shady it's it's great and wonderful but you have a whole lot of people there who are invalids in one way or another which means they can't get around that well which means part of the thing in this place is it probably smells really bad if you've been to a place like maybe a woodstock concert type thing right and like nobody is going to the bathroom where they're supposed to and going all the wrong places the whole thing just stinks no like some people i know they're like this oh no no i don't use deodorant i'm all natural Use some deodorant because you stink. God gave us the grace to know how to make some, so lear, learn how to use it, right? But this is a place that probably smells really bad. And there's either tens or hundreds of people in this place, and they all want healing from God. Most of your Bibles skip verse 4, but this is what verse 4 says. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters." The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. So verse 4 tells you why these people were there. Why are they laying around the pool? What's going on in this instance? Uh, John probably didn't write that because when he originally wrote it, Everyone knew what he was talking about when he talked about this pool and these people and this place. This isn't in what we call the earliest manuscripts. A later scribe read that and thought people aren't going to know what this means so he made a note in the margin and then somebody somehow inserted that into the text. One of the reasons you can trust the Bibles that you have is we're always going back to the earliest manuscripts. Your Bible is not a translation of a translation of a translation. It's from that to you. Earliest manuscripts to what you have in your hand. And anytime there's anything that looks even a little odd it's a footnote so they tell you about it so you can trust it. But these people are waiting here because every once in a while this legend arose that the waters would stir and someone would get healed. Now, it could, it could have been something as simple as, you know, someone's down at the pool and it's really nice and they, and they slipped and they knocked their shoulder out of joint and like, oh, then they rolled it into the pool and boom, they knocked it back in. I'm healed. It's a miracle. You know, it could have something like that. But somehow this, this legend arose. Imagine it's actually true, okay? Okay. Uh, the water stir, the earth burps, something happens, and there are hundreds of people trying to get into the pool to be healed. And yet it tells you only the first one who touches the water actually gets to be healed. Guess that whole last is first versus first is last thing doesn't apply here in this instance, right? What do the rest of the people do? Because they're invalids, they're disabled. The water's stirring. Right? And all of a sudden, you're in the pool, and they're all in the pool. How are they going to get out of the pool? There's no lifeguard on duty. What do you do? It's chaos. This place is chaos. This still happens today. There are places where there's legends of healings taking place, and wherever they are, it ends up being chaos, with lines and throngs of people all in these different places. Jesus shows up in the midst of this, in the midst of all of this, and this is where we meet this guy. Uh, verse 5, he says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. You will learn he wasn't born that way. There was some sin in his life that led him to be an invalid, so some decision he made, but he has been now an invalid for these 38 years. You don't know how long he's been at the pool, but that's where he is. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Why would Jesus ask that question? The guy's at the pool, waiting for the water to get stirred so someone can roll into the water, and yet he looks at me and says, Do you want to be healed? Now, I have a speculation on this, and it's not politically correct, so let me go through my entire explanation before you might want to get mad and irritated at me, okay? So let me go through all of this. Do you think everybody at that pool might, do you think everybody at that pool wants to get healed? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because typically in a place like this, you'd sit around with these people and whoever whined the loudest would get the alms, they would get the money. And, like, if you do, you think every homeless person wants a place to live, or everyone who says we'll work for food really wants to work for food? I, the answer to that is no, because I have given people food, and I, and I still do. And I have gotten people places to stay, and they haven't stayed where I got a place to stay, and they haven't eaten the food. I think this is one of the reasons in Acts why John and Peter look at the beggar, and they say, Look at us, so they can, they can look at him. And this is sometimes even a lot like a church. Does everybody who comes to church want to worship God and live in Jesus' ways? No, no, we, we don't. Some people uh, have come to Element because they wanted a handout of some sort. Uh, some people are religious and it's just what you do. I feel guilty at Sunday. i got to go to church somewhere. Uh, some people have come to Element looking for a date. Good luck with that, by the way. Is that you? Uh, many, many people go to Bethesda for various reasons. And when people don't want to get well, what we tend to do is sit around and commiserate and whine with one another and say, look how much worse off I am than you. I like to call our modern pool of Bethesda Facebook because everybody likes to post all their stuff on Facebook and wants everybody to commiserate with them on it. Now, I believe there are legitimate victims out there who really need help and that's why we must be a people who look with eyes of compassion and grace to see those who are around them and jesus and jesus looks at this one guy he doesn't heal everyone he speaks to this one guy and what he says is do you want to be healed the niv says do you want to get well why would jesus say that because if jesus heals him everything in his life is going to have to change you no longer get to beg you actually have to get up and you have to get a job See, it's like for a lot of us, when we pray to Jesus for things in our life, what we want is Jesus to many times change our circumstances, but not actually change us. We want to do the same thing we've always been doing and expecting him to change the result of our same decisions, but not actually change us, because we don't really want to get well. We just want him to change all these other things out there. I mean, this, this happens a lot in relationships, whether it's with a boss or a coworker or a spouse or a friend. Many times we will act a certain way with somebody around us, and we'll be like, oh, God, please make things better. And we're always thinking that it's God changing the other person. When God heals us, he changes us, and we step into those relationships differently than before because when we want to get well, that's what begins to happen. And A lot of times we don't really want to get well. We want to just do the same thing but with a different result. So what I want to do is give you a little bit of permission right now if you have friends or people in your life who you feel like are always whining. Actually ask them, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? The people here, you say, how's it going? And they said, I had a terrible week. And you're like, I know, you always have a terrible week. <laughs> right? so it, yes. Do you want things to really change? Do you want things to change? Like counseling sometimes can drive me crazy because people just, they'll talk and talk and talk and they screw up. The, I lie too much and I drink too much and I watch things I shouldn't. It's messing up my life. Do you want to change? They will say yes, but they really don't want to change. What they want to change is the circumstances that surround their decisions that they've made. They don't personally want Jesus to actually change them. Because when we are a people who come to Jesus, we come because we want him to change us, to heal us, to renew us, to remake us. And that makes everything different. Jesus says, do you want to get healed? Do you want to be well? Do you really want things to change? This is this guy's answer. Verse 7, the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Did he answer the question? No. What did he do? He whined. That's what he did. Because he's probably been there so long, it's probably just who he is at that moment. He's like, I don't know. If I came to you and I said, You want a hundred thousand dollars, you know what your answer should be? Yes. <laughs> yes, right? Or no. But but yeah, you know, it's it's yes, right. Because it's not like, oh, I want to a hundred dollars, but I lost my brother bought a house for 400000 dollars. No, it's yes or no. That that's what you want. That's what you want to do. I you know you're like I married that person, I get it. But you know, Jesus blows past this guy's whining, and this this is what happens. Uh, verse eight. Then Jesus said, get up. Take up your bed and walk. This reminds me of like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 13 and 14. And Paul says, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the price which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It is, you know what? I do want to get well. I'm going to get up, I'm going to get over it, I'm going to move on. We're going to go. Christ's authority heals this guy in this moment. Verse 9. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Beautiful. Here's the next line. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Oh, dun, dun, dun. That, that's a bad deal when it's the Sabbath. This guy picks up his roll. He's walking around with it. Somebody sees him walking and says, what are you walking with your bad roll for? It's the Sabbath. Uh, I was nimble invalid. I was just healed. Who healed you? You can't be healed on the Sabbath. It's all these stupid man-made rules, right? They're not in the Bible, but that's what happened. And so this guy gets healed. Someone's going to get in trouble. He's going to make sure it's not him. Okay. <laughs> Uh, verse 10 he says the man who healed me that man said to me take up your bed and walk love this guy right it's not my fault it is not my fault i'm a victim i was healed against my will you know me i'm the guy at the pool i whine all day long you've seen me there right yeah and this guy comes up and he's like he's like you want to get well and i'm like eh, the pool. and he's just like get up and he was like so overbearing i had to get up and now i'm walking around it's not my fault he's so rude verse 12 they asked him Who was the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. Great guy, right? Didn't say thank you, anything. For Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in that place. The guy doesn't know, Jesus slips away. In the book of Acts, okay, I think Peter is careful of his healing of this man. Probably looks at him to make sure he doesn't have an arm shoved inside his T-shirt or something like that. But also what you see is Peter doesn't write this guy off just because he saw Jesus get burned. And Jesus doesn't write people off just because he constantly got burned. Just like God never writes us off as many times as we burn him. What he always comes to us and he says is, do you want to get well? Do you want me to live? Do you want me to change your life? The guy in John John 5, again, you find out later, he's in the predicament because of some decision. He had made his own sin. In Acts, it's the opposite. The guy had been like this from birth. But in both cases, you see people go and extend compassion to them because they're living out what the gospel is supposed to breed in God's people. The Gospel Transformation Bible says this, The power of God's salvation not only creates generosity, but also drives concern for the weak and afflicted, as seen in Peter and John's interaction with this beggar. It's that the guy isn't a statistic. He's not just someone else who's hurt. He, it's a real person. Both of these miracles, they start to spread like wildfire. And you know the results in the people's lives are a little bit different, but in John five, it's it's about what God is doing, right? So Jesus goes on to preach a message about the work of God in the world. In Acts chapter three, Peter preaches a sermon that points to God's authentication of who Jesus is. In verse fifteen, he says he will uh, he says, uh, "You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and His name has made this man strong." Here you see that ultimately the miracle is pointing to what God's salvation is going to do in the person of Jesus. It's all about Him. It's about the work of God. What is God's ultimate work in the world? Jesus and His rescue and salvation of His people that He is calling in. If we want a solid resting place for our faith, it is always in the person of Jesus. Our faith does not rest in miracles and whether we can prove them or not. Our faith rests in the person, the revelation of who Jesus is. Now, last year, we did this whole book called The Reason for God from Tim Keller, and Tim Keller says this God did not give us a watertight argument, He gave us a watertight person. And miracles are meant to authenticate that. Now, after Peter heals this man, he will preach this message to the onlookers that almost sounds like what Jesus said to this guy. He'll, he'll, he'll preach and he'll say, Do you want to believe? Do you want to get better? Have you listened to Jesus? Really, it's the idea do you want to get well? In Acts 3.21, Peter says the healing is a sign of God's coming restoration of all things. This is what it's ultimately pointing to, all that God had promised in Jesus. All the miracles the apostles performed were not just showing authentication of their message, which part of it was, but they were also pointing forward to the kind of restoration that God is intending to do in the entire world. Jesus' miracles were not just a magic show to display his power. I mean, if he wanted to do that, he could have written his name in the sky or lift up the temple or helped the Lakers win a game or something like that. But he doesn't do those things like that, right? He, if you look closely, you'll see almost every miracle that is done becomes the alleviation of suffering in one way or another. It all points to the saving purpose of Jesus. J.D. Greer wrote this. He says, Jesus' miracles did not show off the naked fact of his power. They revealed the redemptive purpose of his power. The do you want to get well. Let me see if I can make this real. A lot of times we look around today and we will see suffering in the world, and, and that's a good thing. Not the suffering, but that we see the suffering. What we have to understand is that God's rescue and salvation in Jesus is not just for out there. It's for in here. He changes us. He makes us well because when He does that, He sends us out like the apostles to alleviate suffering in the world. The miracles of Jesus and the apostles were a message about the salvation that Jesus is going to bring to the entire world, the whole redemptive purpose. Acts 3, the lame guy, he he asks for money. Peter says, I have no silver and gold. Peter doesn't say, oh, you shouldn't ask me for money. That's not the point there. He goes, I'm going to heal you and give you something that's better and deeper. And so he he heals him. You'll see in Acts chapter 4, this guy actually becomes a disciple of Jesus. And it's the greatest miracle in the world, the greatest gift. And sometimes we get so caught up in the miracles and looking at them and what happened. But what if Peter said, I don't have any money to give you and and I can't heal you. But you know what? I'm going to sit here and talk to you about Jesus. And and he did. And this guy believed. We sometimes think of that as much less moving and much less spectacular. But it's not. The salvation of souls, of restoration to relationship with God, is greater than any temporary miracle. What I mean by this is the guy in Acts probably sat by the temple each day, watching people walk in and out and in and out and in and out. And he probably sits there and thinks, if I could just walk, man, if I could walk, I would never be unhappy again. Let me ask you, uh, a lot of you walked in here this morning on your own power, some with less pain than others, I get it, okay. <laughs> but, but are you ever unhappy? Of course you are. You walk, does walking make you happy? No, no. And this is what we always do, though. We're always looking around for that one thing. God give me this, God give me that, more, more money, uh, better health, better relationships. Not that those are bad, but in the end what we need is Jesus, restoration to God, not some temporary thing. We need an eternal thing. We need to be able to want to get well. And I think this is where it's pushing us towards. What is interesting is almost every miracle for Jesus and the apostles always seem to get the miracle workers in trouble. Almost every single time in the next chapter of Acts, John and Peter, they're going to get thrown in jail for the message that comes out of this healing. No reward, no praise, no scene in interview, uh, no Time Magazine, Man of the Year, nothing like that. And this is different than most hero stories today. In our hero stories, you become a hero, you become invincible. But what happens when God gives us power is it tends to make us more vulnerable because He wants us to be a people who see the needs around us as God exposes and opens our hearts to the things that He sees. This is what God does in us. In order to leave this man suffering, the apostles must suffer themselves. Like this guy gets healed, they go to prison. This is also what happens to Jesus. Jesus heals this guy, gets in all kinds of trouble. It's actually even this place where Jesus takes a guy named Lazarus who's in the grave, raises him from the dead. And as soon as he does, John 11.53 says this, from that point on, they determined to kill him. Really? Really? Tim Keller says this, by taking Lazarus out of the grave, he put himself in it. Because do you understand, today as the church, we are called to be God's ambassadors to the world. The world is supposed to see who God is by how we live. And we don't always do a great job of that. I know that. But meaning, many times healing in the world comes as life and power and money and opportunity go out from us. Because we have first been healed. And so we live differently. We're supposed to pour out our money and our opportunity as genuine sacrifice to Jesus in the world. And if our giving leads to some type of sacrifice in our lives, it shouldn't surprise us. One commentator says this a great spiritual truth that if we learn it would explain so much of our life. The healing of the world comes through the sacrificial death of the church. As we give ourselves away. He says that God brings life to people around us. Many times we he brought life to us. We sacrifice for others, like Jesus sacrificed for us, and we count it a blessing to do so in the midst of it. And honestly, it's not always this voluntary sacrifice on our parts. Sometimes God will bring things into our lives and, and we will suffer. And things will be really hard. And sometimes we'll say, you know, God, what did I do wrong? You know, how how what am I doing? And the answer is, maybe you didn't do anything wrong at that. Maybe you're like Job. But God has a bigger purpose in what we go through. Because ultimately, as believers, whatever we go through is to preach about who God is and bring people to him. And how we suffer and how we go through things is going to have this message that speaks to those around us. And if we have joy in the midst of uh, the things that are hard in our life, it's going to show who God is in all things. Like our suffering is not always just about our suffering. It's about God's glory. God's purpose many times in things we go through is not punitive. What it is, it's redemptive for other people. And so we understand this, that no matter what we step into, that we say, God, heal me, change me, have me step out of this world because you have rescued and redeemed me, and we see the world completely differently. Now when I talk about healings, many times people ask this question, and they say, does God still heal today? I think he does. I really do, okay? Uh, I don't think it's always like Acts 3 or John 5 and that shouldn't be our expectation but God can do anything and I'd like to help you be a little realistic in this a bit. Uh, Peter in this story heals on command, okay? It is like, doesn't even talk to God, just boom, you know, be healed and and it happens and throughout Acts you see this level of authority and power given to God's apostles And, and I think when you look at that, it's like Steve talked about a couple weeks ago that God is authenticating his message of his church and going forward so it's a very unique time. Like, you get past the time of Acts and in 2 Timothy 4:12 Paul will say this, Trophimus I have left at Miletus sick. Now Paul's a guy who people at one point just wanted to put people in his shadow so they'd be healed. And yet this is a little farther along now and all of a sudden Paul's got a buddy and he can't heal him or God's not healing him. What's happening? Well, Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 says, It was declared at first by the Lord and was testified to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. God gives the apostles an extraordinary amount of power in this time to authenticate the fact that He was speaking, but also to point to what God is going to do ultimately for all people for all time, and that is rescue every single one of us. That doesn't mean that God always heals in these ways. It doesn't mean he can't, though. I think God still can and still does at times. But we shouldn't walk around expecting it just to be normative, like if you're in the mall and someone's in a wheelchair. Don't walk up and be like, I don't have silver and gold, but in the power of Jesus, get it. Because it would just be really awkward when they fall back down at that point, right? And it's also, I think, through this thing that we talked about called the enlightenment, I think that God gave us doctors and medicine, and we should be able to go to doctors because God gave us the ability to learn the human body. So will everyone receive you know, healing when they pray by faith? Well, yes and no. I think the whole point of where these miracles point to is that eventually, yes, the day is coming because God has promised, and He's good for His promises. He says He'll restore all things. The dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. There will be no more disease or mourning or crying or pain. But in the short term in this, No. Not always so. God sometimes has a bigger purpose in the things that he allows us to go through in our lives than just physical healing. I think sometimes God grows us to know him better in the midst of our pain. And sometimes he uses our suffering to bring other people to know him better in the midst of it. Someone once wrote this. They said, uh, sometimes God glorifies himself by helping sick people get well. And sometimes he is glorified when sick people die well. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a hard thing to hear sometimes. But in the end, it's all about what God is doing in the restoration of all things. N.T. Wright uh, wrote this book called Surprised by Hope, which is kind of a play off C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. But anyway, uh, he says that evangelism will flourish best when the church, simultaneously to proclaiming the gospel message, gives itself to works of mercy and beauty, pointing to the love and justice of God and highlighting the glory of creation and the glory of that creation yet to be revealed. This is the main message that Jesus preaches and the main message that Peter preaches. It's not focus on the miracle, focus on the healing. It's focus on what God is doing in the world. Do you want to get well? Do you want God to change who you are? Repent and return to who God is calling you to be because we can all be in relationship with God again. And I think that when we understand and ask, yes, I do really want to be healed. I really do want to get well. What that does is that then changes us to be a people who understand that we have since been healed by him have been sent out into the world as his ambassadors to also be people who proclaim that healing, who, who reach out to be able to touch people, to offer that healing with our own hands, that we are called to live completely differently because our God has come and rescued us. It's, it's, again, why he calls us his ambassadors. And I get, sometimes, if you've ever seen some ambassadors in the world and some of the things they do for their country, it's not good. Just like us, sometimes. We do some of the dumbest things. But God doesn't get rid of us. God comes back, and he goes, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to send you to keep being my ambassador. I mean, people say about Christianity, right, oh, Christianity is stupid. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. Why? That's not who Jesus is. It's how his ambassadors live. But even in the midst of those failings and fallings, he keeps calling us back and keep using us. And sometimes, I don't know why, right? Because we're a bunch of knuckleheads. But he keeps calling us back in and healing us and rescinding us back out again. Because the ultimate redemptive purpose of all that God is doing is drawing the world to himself and his rescue of all the sin and misery that we have brought. And so when he changes, he sends us back out to begin to make that difference. And that's the beauty of the miracle that the healing is not just for these people. It's for our lives and our hearts and our souls so God sends us back out again. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. It's a reminder of what God did to rescue us, to heal us, to restore us to God again. That no matter what thing you're looking around saying, if I just had that or, that, or just have that or just had that, then I'd be happy and fulfilled. That's not how it works. Because no matter what we have, we're always going to end up in a place where we want more or something. It's like the whole message of Ecclesiastes, right? And, and this is the thing that God has come to rescue and heal us, to bring us in a relationship with himself. Because that, in the end, is what we all truly need. And this is what God brings us. And this is why you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. And you dip it in the wine of the grape juice and it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people. So that we can be those who are restored, that we are healed, we are brought back into saving relationship with God again. Because of his own goodness, which in turn makes us begin to live differently. Uh, I was going to say the band's going to come up, but Sean's going to come up. (laughs) And if you need prayer, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you're in a place today, maybe where you're almost afraid to say, you know, yes, God, heal me. I want you to heal me. Because when that happens, it really does make us change how we live our lives. Everything begins to look just a little bit different. Because as soon as we say, yes, I want to get will, and then God changes us, we live differently. We do. I mean, not because it makes God love us more, but we simply live differently because we are now being changed. And God is drawing and wooing and and bringing us along. And if you are someone who has some circumstance in your life and and you want to pray for God to bring some healing to that, they would love to pray with you about that. Um, If you are someone who is afraid to pray that God would actually heal you in your heart and your life because you don't really want to change, they'd love to pray with you about that as well. Um, Sometimes it's easier to live in a place expecting everybody else to change rather than us to change. And it's a a hard place to be in that because we really don't want Jesus to heal us. And I think the beauty is when we come to a place of true repentance in our lives where we say, Yes, I do. I want everything to change. I want you to heal me. Because that, I think, is where we will actually begin to get up and live in true restoration and salvation. Um, There's offering boxes next to every single door we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. Uh, We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what God has done. And there's some snacks outside. You can grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes. Meet with some people this week and talk through some of those questions. You know, what places in your life do you not want to get well in? You know, what, what places in your life do you have these circumstances that you just want your circumstances to change, but you don't want to have to change in the midst of them? And maybe talk through those things with people you care about and love, because those are the places in the conversations that actually, I think, begin to draw us deeper to one another, but actually help us to begin to change. And the only way we change is by the great grace of God who has rescued and healed and restored us. So let's be a people who understand the purpose of all the miracles, God's ultimate redemption and restoration because of his goodness and love for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would continually remind us of the great love that you have for us in the midst of asking hard questions such as, do you really want to get well? Because to really be honest with that answer, it means all of our life is going to change. And yet you have such grace and love for us that you don't stop asking the question. But you actually go to the cross and die for us to heal us and restore us. That the gospel speaks a better word than anything our lives could apart from you. And so today I ask that you would teach us to rest and trust in you in ways where we truly want to be well. And in making us well, I ask that we'd also understand how we have been sent out to love you by how we love those around us, to reflect who you are as your ambassadors in this world. Father, I ask that you teach us to place all of who we are in your more than capable hands and that we would all truly come to the place where we do want to be healed. Thank you for your extravagant love that teaches us in these places of failure and falling down that you still lift us up and bring us to yourself. So teach us as a people to walk in that great love trusting that full health and wellness leads to your glory and our joy. Teach us to understand and live in that. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.